Uh, please open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. Our passage for this morning is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. In just a few weeks, we're going to have a presidential election. And of course, one of the main issues in this upcoming election is what is often referred to as identity politics. If you're not familiar with that brand name, you're still very much aware of the product. It's politics centered around some aspect of a person's identity, be that their race or sex or even their religion. And the idea is to get people to stop thinking about politics in terms of a general philosophy of government, of what is a good or bad system of government, a good or bad policy, and to get them focused instead on who they are and how particular policies or politicians might best serve their particular group. I imagine you already know what I'm talking about. It's the political air that we breathe. And in the eyes of many, it's the source of this ever-increasing division we seem to be experiencing as a country. As you might imagine, definitions are a big part of identity politics. In order to create these various groups of people, you need to first define who or what people are. You need to make distinctions between one group of people and another if you're going to get them to buy into the narrative that they're the victim of some other group's efforts to suppress people, quote, unquote, like them. And before you get too far ahead of me, don't think I'm just talking about Black Lives Matter matters and all of that. This is happening on both sides. Both Democrats and Republicans are being told in one form or fashion, you are this, and these people over here are actively working to suppress people like you. To what degree that's true or not, the desired effect is to galvanize political support by convincing you of that narrative, and that requires first defining one group and then distinguishing it from another. So what you've seen over the past few years is this increasing awareness of definitions in politics. For example, earlier this week during the confirmation hearing for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, Judge Barrett was taken to task at one point by Senator Hirano of Hawaii for using the term sexual preference instead of sexual orientation. Reason being, Hirano explained sexual preference implies that sexuality is a choice whereas sexual orientation implies that it's an innate characteristic no different than a person's sex or skin color. As you can imagine, that distinction is not only relevant to how a Supreme Court justice is going to decide cases relating to sexual orientation, you know, whether or not the Equal Protection Clause applies to the LGBTQ community and the like, but unfortunately, it's also critical to this notion of identity politics. If a person is gay, if homosexual sex isn't just something they happen to do, but if it's a part of who they are, even an integral part of who they are, then they can be distinguished and even pitted against those who do not share their quote-unquote lifestyle. 
Again, this this gets weaponized very quickly. And once it's weaponized, the discussion gets ugly very, very fast. Still, regardless of how this argument over terms is weaponized politically, I think we need to understand that it's not for no reason. The fact is, terms are incredibly important. You see it right there in that line of questioning with Judge Barrett. Regardless of how Senator Hirano may have intended to use that distinction to score political points, the fact is that whether or not you see sexuality as a mere preference or as an orientation probably is going to shape how you decide cases relating to a person's sexuality. Postmoderns are actually right in this sense. Words are power. The one who controls the language, the one who has the power to define things, controls the world. If I could put it this way, it's not for no reason that one of the first things that God has Adam do after creating him is name all the various animals that God had created. That's an expression of Adam's dominion and of his his authority to rule over the earth. Definitions tend to denote relationship and purpose. They not only explain what an object is, but in explaining what it is, They tend to determine its proper relationship with the rest of the world. And for this reason, one of the most important questions that a person can ever ask themselves is, who am I? What am I? We've seen this principle bear itself out recently in our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Perhaps the most obvious example is with respect to the body. You know, what is the body? Is it merely a temporary thing destined for eventual destruction and elimination? Or is it something more permanent than that? The way you answer that question will dramatically alter the way you interact with the body. The Corinthians, of course, had taken to the opinion that it was exclusively temporary in nature. And on the basis of that, they had separated into two different camps. One said, uh, use it and abuse it. And the other camp said, deny its cravings. Neither one, however, saw the body as something entirely uh, meaningful or useful. And that, of course, was the position taken by the Apostle Paul. He, based on his belief that the body, though changing, was still in a sense permanent. He did see it as meaningful and useful. For him, the body was something that had been redeemed by Christ as demonstrated through the resurrection. And this meant that it needed to be used in service to Christ, that it was in a sense purchased by him and not only could, but even must be used for his purposes. So two different definitions of the body, two different applications, really three, actually, even though two of them are still concluding that the body isn't meaningful or useful. And this hasn't been our only example. Is a person married or unmarried? Is their spouse a believer or an unbeliever? The answers to these questions change the way a person interacts with their spouse and even their use of their own body. If you recall, even before this, Paul tells the Corinthians, regard me in this way. He says, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm a spectacle to be marveled at on behalf of Christ. I'm your spiritual father and you, my spiritual sons. He asks, he asks the Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple? 
Do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world, that you are judges? He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God before then asserting, and such were some of you? All along the way, as he says, regard me like this, and you need to remember that you are this. He's saying this in order to change the way that they interact with Paul and with one another and with sin. And this is all because what a person is will determine what they do. How they are defined determines their relationship with the rest of the world. The Corinthians have adopted some wrong definitions that have led to some wrong applications. And so what Paul is trying to do is supply them with the right ones. He's trying to effect change by telling them you need to stop thinking of yourself like this and start thinking of yourself like this. Friends, the labels that you attach to yourself will shape you. So it's worth asking, what are you? Even more specifically, what have you become? How has your relationship with Christ redefined who you are and how you're supposed to interact with the rest of the world? This is a question that we're currently exploring from 2 Corinthians 5. October is Missions Month here at Cornerstone, and as I've explained over the past couple of weeks, the aim of Missions Month is to almost see the entire month of October as a kind of extended holiday commemorating and celebrating this mission that we've received from Christ to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel. One of the beauties of holidays is that they intend to instill a sense of identity. That's not only true in the sense that one culture will tend to celebrate a different set of holidays than another, meaning every culture tends to have its own set of traditions, but it's also true in the sense that very often these holidays themselves tend to communicate some aspect of a culture's identity. You know, we celebrate the 4th of July, for instance, in part to remember our national identity, what values our nation was founded upon and who we are as a people. In the same way the people of Israel celebrated the Passover. It reminded them of that concept that served as the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant that, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Well, listen, one of the reasons why we're celebrating Missions Month during the month of October is because that's part of what I want to impart to you, this sense of identity. It was during this month that the people of Israel would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And this festival not only served to remind Israel of the consequences of disobedience and of the faithfulness and even omnipresence of God, but it reminded them of their identity as well. To be specific, it reminded them of the fact that they are sojourners. Not only do they once have to wait for God to bring them out of the promised land, but they wait even still. In fact, even life itself... There to see is is nothing more than a sojourn, a temporary journey that all the faithful must go through as they await their arrival into a better country, as Hebrew tells us, uh, that is a heavenly one. Of course, that's something we are in Christ too, right? We too are sojourners. 
We too are awaiting the coming of the kingdom of God. We too are awaiting our home in heaven. And as we've seen, it's this very thought that fueled men like the Apostle Paul to devote themselves to the central mission that we've received in Christ to proclaim the gospel among the nations. And so given how central that mission is to our calling in Christ, I thought it would be a good idea to spend an entire month remembering this particular aspect of our identity. Again, there are many labels that you could attach to us as Christians. Just in 1 Corinthians, right? We've seen we are the temple of God. We are judges. We are unleavened bread, meaning we are holy. But given the mission we've received in Christ, the calling that we have here on this planet, this is among the most important for us to remember. We are sojourners. That's what we're remembering during the month of October. And what we're seeing right now in 2 Corinthians 5 is how this thought motivated the Apostle Paul to preach the gospel. This morning marks our third week in this passage. In week one, we saw that this concept motivated Paul to invest in eternal things, or to be even more specific, eternal reward. The Corinthians once again had this view of the body that said, either indulge it or deny it, but either way it's worthless since it's passing away. Here, Paul provides them with an alternative point of view. He says, no, this just means you need to use and even use up the body for the sake of Christ. The body is a perishable resource in Paul's eyes. It's got an expiration date. And so the only wise thing to do is to use it in order to invest in something more permanent and abiding, which for Paul meant using to invest it in heavenly reward. So whether we are at home or away, he says in verses 9 and 10, referring to this future home that he'll have in his resurrected body, he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In week two, we then discussed how this motivated Paul to preach the gospel specifically. Verse 11, Paul continues, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The whole idea is that because Paul must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what he did with his body, both good and bad, he therefore proclaims the gospel. And of course, we took a look at why Paul would come to this conclusion. The main reason being that Christ commands us as Christians to preach the gospel. He commanded the Apostle Paul personally, but he commands all of us in the Great Commission to proclaim this gospel. This is even the central mission that we've received from Christ, the purpose of our existence in this world. And so if reward is distributed based on a person's obedience, not according to their ministry output, you will recall, but their obedience to, their dedication unto Christ, then this means that not just Paul, but all of us should be looking for ways that we should use this life in the proclamation of the gospel. This is what our status as sojourners should mean to us. It means that we're only on this planet temporarily. This world is not our home. We must all one day stand before Christ and give an account for how we used what he had entrusted to us. And so since our central purpose here in this world is to advance his glory through the proclamation of the gospel, then we should spend this time doing whatever we can to advance his glory 
through the proclamation of Christ. Now this week, week three, I want us to spend some time reflecting on how this concept shapes the way we proclaim this message. Of course, we already spent some time reflecting on this idea last week. We saw, for instance, that this idea of a future judgment before Christ caused Paul to proclaim the gospel radically, faithfully, and lovingly. But I want you to consider now how this idea leads us to proclaim this message broadly. If you remember, I've said that during Missions Month, I want us to increasingly widen our scope from week to week. Just as Jesus told the disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then even eventually to the ends of the earth, so too do I want us to increasingly think about this responsibility we have to take the gospel first to our friends and family, and then to our neighbors, and then to other communities across the state, perhaps, or even the nation, even all the way to the ends of the earth. Uh, This week, for instance, we're thinking about the advancement of the gospel nationally. Next week, internationally. Well, why is this the case? What is it about the gospel that so transforms the way we think, not only about ourselves, but about others, such that we not only share it with our family and friends, but even strangers on the other side of the planet? That's what we're going to look at this morning in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. Let's go ahead and read this passage in its context, starting actually in verse 1 and continuing through the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're always of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. The love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the things I, that I think we often fail to take into account as Gentile Christians is how radical the gospel was for a guy like Paul. How absolutely backwards it would have seemed once he began to understand its implications. Israel was more or less a closed society. Sociologists today would probably go so far as to say they were xenophobic, meaning they were afraid of outsiders. They didn't like people who were different from them. This xenophobia would have even been reflected in things like the Feast of Tabernacles. As the people gathered to Jerusalem each year and relived their wilderness experience by encamping around the temple and the glory of God which inhabited the temple, one of the things they would have been reminded of is how they have been set apart from all the other nations in order to dwell in the presence of God. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you, Moses says, Deuteronomy 4.1. He says, keep them and do them, verse 6, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Guys, this is one of the lessons of the tabernacles. That this God who dwells in the heavens, whose presence extends throughout the whole earth, has at the same time called Israel out of the world, set them apart, that his glory might dwell among them. This was even one of the purposes of the Mosaic law. It allowed Israel to maintain the presence of God in their midst. Again, this is what the tabernacles reenacted. It reminded Israel that they were the nation huddled around the light in the midst of this dark, dark world. And that's actually a really important truth for a people like Israel to remember. And this is even another one of the reasons why I want us to remember this holiday during the month of October. Like Israel, we too are called to be distinct from the world. Like Israel, we too need to be reminded of the privilege that we have to have both God's presence and commands among us, not only through the scriptures, but through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I want us to remember that we should not envy the world. We should not wish to be like them because we have something better. However, God's presence in the tabernacle was different from the kind of presence that you and I enjoy today. In one critically important respect, and that's in the fact that under this administration, God dwelled among his people, but not necessarily in his people. If you've been following our recent Sunday School series, you can probably grasp the significance of that point. Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that in the beginning, God created man and he created him good. Man was given this mandate to glorify God in the earth, and at that time, there was nothing to really prevent man from fulfilling that purpose. But then Genesis 3, man sins. 
And as Genesis continues to unfold, we discover that when this happens, not only does man provoke this curse from God, but he sets off a chain reaction of sin as well. Adam's sin isn't contained to just Adam. It's passed down to his progeny. From generation to generation, it only gets worse. It gets so bad that by the time of Noah, God is compelled to more or less just erase mankind and start over. Only, of course, after the flood, it didn't get better. Man's sin condition is still there. We start to discover that man's problem with sin isn't something going on outside of him. It's, a matter, it's not a matter of his circumstances. It's the condition of his heart. The sin problem continues to escalate. By Genesis 11, man is collectively making an effort to contend with God. So God scatters the people, confuses the languages, creates the very first nations, and then from among the nations he calls one man, a man of faith who goes by the name of Abram, And he says, I'm going to create a nation out of you. And in you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Abram eventually becomes Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And over time, God begins to deliver on the promises he made to Abraham. He gives him the descendants he promised. He takes the people into Egypt, then delivers them out of it. He readies to give them the land that he had originally promised to Abraham. The problem is that nowhere in any of this does God address the sinfulness of the heart in Abraham's descendants? And so what does God do? Well, at this stage in history, he gives them his law. And part of what the law is designed to do is is regulate the sinfulness of their hearts by keeping them separate from the nation. So the law doesn't just allow Israel to maintain God's presence in their midst, but it does this in part by restricting the idolatrous and sinful inclinations of their heart by keeping them distinct from, separate from, the sinful and idolatrous nations that surround them. If you can think of the sin in man's heart sort of like a fire, the law was designed to keep that fire burning low by depriving it of as much oxygen as possible. It attempts to remove the temptations that will cause Israel to sin and provoke the wrath of the God who dwells in their midst. Or maybe you can think of it kind of like God is the fire and Israel's sin is the fuel that gets it to burn hot. The law is designed to keep that oxygen from coming in. Either way, I think you get my point. Well, you might expect what this all did to... Israel's perspective towards outsiders and most especially after they did sin and God's wrath was incited and they suffered severe discipline at the hands of the Lord not only did they think Gentiles or Goyim as they're known in the Hebrew to be dangerous but they thought them to be inferior I mean do you understand just as other nations throughout history have used this phrase God with us as a rallying cry to indicate that they're especially favored in God's eyes, so also did Israel begin to think that they were ethnically superior to the rest of the nations. You see it play out in the Gospels. Some of them are coming to John the Baptist, and John is warning them about the wrath that's to come, and he has to tell them, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. The same thing happens to Jesus in John 8. As he implores the people there to abide in his word so that they might be set free, they say, we are offspring of Abraham. 
I've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? There's just this tremendous pride among them, thinking themselves automatically superior to the goyim of the earth on account of their descent from Abraham. And as you can imagine, this pride is only then magnified by the fact that they have the laws of Moses. Again, Moses implored them in Deuteronomy, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? But you see what Moses meant as an encouragement to their faith. They eventually transformed into a boast. We have the law of God, they said, and all these other goyim, are nothing more than a bunch of knuckle-dragging mouth breathers. Do you see how much division was created by the law? Both intended and unintended? Well, this is what Paul would have thought back when he was Saul. Now, watch how the gospel transforms his thinking towards outsiders. Verses 14 and 15, 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. And just like Terry told you a few weeks back when he was preaching from this passage, that's not Paul's love for Christ that's being referred to there, but Christ's love for Paul or even Christ's love for the world. Again, he says, for the love of Christ controls us, meaning this love determines our actions. He says, because we've concluded this, That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul actually clarifies what he means by this a little further down in this text. In verses 18 and 19, he says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You know what Paul is referring to there, right? He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. As Paul explains in Romans 5, just as all became guilty through the sin of one man, Adam, in the same way all are justified or declared righteous through the righteousness of one man, Jesus. Romans 5.18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. The penalty for sin is death, the scripture tells us. And so what Jesus did is pay the penalty for sin on account of all mankind so that whoever believes in him might be saved. In the words of that famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what Paul is referring to here. Again, verse 18, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And just in case you're wondering, yes, that word world there is not a reference to each and individual person in the world, as in literally each and every person in the entire world, but with respect to every type of person, every nation, Christ was reconciling the world to himself. 
He's saying Christ is the only way of salvation for all people, and that's because only one person is even capable of offering themselves up as an atonement for sin, and that's the only sinless man who's ever lived the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul notes in verse 21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul actually explains the implications of this idea in greater detail over in Galatians 3. Maybe turn there for a moment with me if you would. I think this will shed some light on what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 5. In Galatians, Paul is addressing those who think that salvation comes only through obedience to the Mosaic law, meaning Gentiles are more or less excluded unless they convert to what you or I would call Judaism. He observes in verse 8 in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Meaning, Gentile salvation was always in view in the Old Testament. In, in calling Abraham, in calling Abraham's descendants and setting them apart, that was never with the intent of saving only Israel or even in view of Israel's spiritual or ethnic superiority. Rather, it was always with an eye towards using Abraham and his descendants as an instrument for the salvation of the nations. Paul continues later in the same chapter by explaining how this salvation happens or how it works, stating in verses 15 through 18, and again, this is Galatians 3, chapters, or Galatians 3 verses 15 through 18. He says, To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Just so you understand, that phrase, into your offspring, that comes from Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where after Abraham attempts to offer up his son Isaac, God stops him. And as he explains to Abraham what will be the outcome of his faithfulness, he says, this is Genesis 22, 17 through 18, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. What Paul is doing here in Galatians 3 is pointing out that that word offspring in that passage is singular in the Hebrew, not plural. Apparently indicating that's referring not to all of Israel, as in, you know, the nations will be blessed through all of Israel, but rather to one particular offspring, one particular Israelite. And that offspring, of course, being Jesus. Now, if you're keeping track at home, right, Genesis 22 comes well before Exodus 20, where God delivers the Ten Commandments. In fact, chronologically, it comes well over 400 years before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And Paul's whole point is to say, you can't modify a covenant once it's been made. If God said to Abraham that the blessing would come through this one particular offspring, then he can't later change it and say, well, now I'm going to bring it through the Mosaic Law. Therefore, the inheritance, this blessing to the Gentiles, has to come by promise. It can't come by obedience to the law. 
He then goes on to explain why the law then. Verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, it wasn't given in order to save anyone. Rather, that law was given as a kind of guardian to protect Israel, to reveal their sin, the sin of all peoples even. Not only so that the line of the offspring might be preserved until the time of his coming, but also that, so that once he came, not only the Jews, but all peoples might see their inability and need for salvation, their need even for this salvation to be given by promise, by grace, through faith. And the idea is that with respect to salvation, Israel might have had a slight advantage in the sense that they received the law through Moses that pointed to that need to salvation. But as far as salvation is concerned, that's never been something that was promised to Israel only. It was always intended for all the peoples. Again, it's not even through the Israelites that the nations shall be blessed. But really through the Israelite, singular, through one Israelite shall the nations of the earth be blessed. And in this respect, even the rest of Israel is on the outside looking in. Everyone is in the same position. They're all in need of this inheritance promised through this one individual Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is received through faith. Again, this is what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15, when he says the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So now, going back to 2 Corinthians 5, maybe flip back there with me here. Watch how this transforms Paul's understanding of outsiders. He says, verses 16 and 17, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You get what Paul is saying there? <laughs> He's saying Jew, Gentile, doesn't really matter in the end. Since we're all blessed in the one Israelite, we're all blessed in the one seed, we're all his descendants, his co-heirs, his brothers and sisters. Like there's a new kind of race that's being born in Jesus Christ, and it's one that's not defined by racial boundaries or one's socioeconomic status or even one's sex, or anything like that, is a class of man that's instead defined through one's relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the same conclusion that Paul comes to in Galatians 3, verses 25 through 29, where he says, But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, uh, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. You see, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there's been this effort lately to redefine um, what racism is and how to solve it. Thirty years ago, the perception was that the goal was to become more or less colorblind. It was said that the way to defeat racism... It's to stop seeing color. That once we understand there's no difference between someone who's white and someone who's black or Asian or Middle Eastern or what have you, and therefore stop acting as if there's any significance to that whatsoever, that's then that we as a society arrive at a point where everyone's treated equally. That philosophy has been changing lately. 
more and more the perception is that actually the way to end racism isn't to ignore race, but to acknowledge it. That the only way to equality is not by pretending that we're all the same when we're actually not, but to understand that there are different cultures, that we don't share the same history and heritage, and that until we acknowledge this, that we'll never be able to address the issues that will make us all truly equal. Now, I'm not here to comment this morning on which of these two options is the right one politically. <laughs> I mean, that's really just a, a much, much bigger issue than what we have time to address here today. And it's not even on topic. It's not the point of this morning's message. But what I can tell you is that with respect to the gospel, the picture that Paul has in mind is more the former of these two options than it is the latter. Now, to be clear, this isn't the same thing as saying that Paul expects all cultures to be swallowed up by the gospel to the degree that there will be only one monolithic Christian culture in the church. I think we'll see as we continue through 1 Corinthians. I think we see in passages like Revelation 7-9 that distinct cultures never really go away. Meaning the goal of the gospel is not to eliminate the distinction of cultures. But if we're talking about access to the gospel, then there is what you might call equal treatment under the law. There is not one race, or for that matter, one sex, or one socioeconomic condition that is better or more worthy than another. Black, white, rich, poor, male, female, they are all equally guilty apart from faith in Jesus Christ, and they are all equally justified and holy through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. There's no difference in the end. For Paul, the human race is really broken up into only two categories— there are the redeemed, and then there are the unredeemed. These are the labels that matter, because that is how the race will be divided up in the end. Not according to a person's sex or economic status or race, but according to whether or not they will be a part of the resurrection unto life or the resurrection unto death. Sheep or goats? In Adam 1 or in Adam 2? And friends, what this means for us as it relates to this mission that we have to proclaim the gospel is that we're not supposed to see things like color or sex or wealth. We're not to prefer the salvation of a man over a woman or a rich man over a poor man or someone who's Asian, for instance, over a Native American. They are all equally worthy of salvation in the sense that they all have the same need. One class or category of people is not more preferred by God than another, since they are all made worthy only through the righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ. And what this means is that as it relates to this responsibility we have to proclaim the gospel, is that we must not just proclaim that message, but proclaim it broadly. If I could put it this way, we are sojourners, right? This is what the resurrection points to. The, this flesh is passing away, ultimately to be replaced by this heavenly spiritual body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And this means that even the way we identify ourselves begins to shift. I'm not an American first. That's not my primary nationality. Rather, I am first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, do you understand, like, even bodily, I am primarily that first. I am living in light, not of what I am presently, but in light of what I'll become. 
And so even though I'm an American, according to the flesh, I don't primarily see my responsibility as to my fellow, fellow countrymen, according to the flesh alone, my fellow Americans. Instead, my obligation is to all of my brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the planet, all of the elect, all of those who will one day rise with me in this resurrection unto eternal life. So I don't just narrow my focus down to one group of people, one kind of demographic. Instead, my status as a foreigner on this earth means I have to broaden it to encompass all the peoples of the earth. Because in the end, there are really only two kingdoms, right? Two nations, you might say. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The domain of darkness and the domain of light. And we as sojourners, as citizens of the kingdom of light, have been tasked with the responsibility to serve as representatives to the kingdom of darkness. That's a kingdom that spans across every kind of demographic that you can think of. It spans across the whole race of Adam. This is one way in which the gospel transforms the way we think about the world around us. With respect to other people, we no longer see them according to the flesh. And this means that we need to proclaim the gospel to all peoples, to all the nations. However, it shouldn't just change the way we see other people. This truth should also change the way we see ourselves. In what sense? Well, look here what Paul says in verses 18 through 19. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And you can see what Paul is doing there, right? Verse 19 is function, functioning as an explanation or expansion of verse 18. And the this in verse 18, when Paul says, all this is from God, is referring to this new status, this new creation that has come in place of the old in verse 17. Paul says, this is from God. And we see in what sense this is from God as the verse unfolds. Number one, it's from God in the sense that God is the one who has planned and accomplished this salvation. And then number two, it's from God in the sense that God has also commissioned Paul and his companions to proclaim this message to others. Again, verse 19 is just an expansion and recapitulation of this point. Paul then concludes, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Again, you trace this plan of salvation that God is unfolding throughout the Old Testament. And it's clear that God never intended for Israel to just sit on what he had revealed to them. Yes, they were not the ultimate vehicle for the blessing of the nations. Christ was and yes, the law was meant to keep them distinct until the time that the Christ should come. And yet the idea was still that they would become a conduit through which God delivered this good news to the rest of the world. It was right there in the passage I read from Deuteronomy earlier this morning. Moses tells the people, he says, keep this law for, he explains, quote, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The people are supposed to see the greatness of their God through Israel. 
It's the same thing that God tells Israel in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, when right before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He tells Israel, not only are you going to be special in my sight, but you're going to serve as my representatives before the entire earth. Yes, festivals like the Feast of Tabernacles reminded Israel that they had received light in a world filled with darkness. But they didn't receive that light just so they might live in it, but so that as citizens of the kingdom of light, they might call others out of the darkness to dwell with them in the presence of God. It's like what Jesus says to Israel specifically, by the way, in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This was ultimately another purpose of the law. It didn't just allow Israel to maintain the presence of God by holding themselves separate from the world. It didn't just hold Israel captive until the time of the coming Messiah, thus preserving the Messianic line and teaching them of their need for their Savior. But it was also to serve as this beautiful picture of the glory of God so that other nations would look at Israel and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Come, let us go and find out where this wisdom comes from. What is the source of their blessing and success? Paul has been commissioned doubly in this respect. He might even say triply. We talked about this some last week. He was not only commissioned to do this generally as a disciple of Jesus Christ and personally as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he was also commissioned, you might say, naturally as a descendant of Abraham, as a member of the nation of Israel. Friends, you and I might not share that same responsibility either by birth, like what Paul does, or by special calling, like what Paul did. But we have all been called as disciples of Jesus Christ to perform this same mission to proclaim the glory of God among the nations. As Jesus tells his disciples after his resurrection, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is another aspect of our sojourning. Listen, we live in a foreign land. Why? Well, to serve as ambassadors to that land, specifically. Meaning there most definitely is a sense in which we can say along with Paul, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You understand? This is a label that you should attach to yourself, that you should allow to shape you. You're not just a sojourner. But you're an ambassador specifically. You're the type of sojourner who sojourns because they have a message to share with the people of the land in which you're sojourning, which in this instance is your king's terms for peace. For our sake he made sin. It made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Paul says in verse 21. What does that look like practically to live as an ambassador. I think we see at least three answers based on this passage in its context. First, ambassadors are faithful to the ones who, the one who sends them, right? They're faithful, meaning they're only representatives. The ambassador doesn't generally make policy. They only represent it. The king makes the decision and sends the message, and then the ambassador says, thus says my king. They represent his interests, 
not their own. Of course, we've seen Paul function in this respect throughout the surrounding context. He says in, back in chapter 2, verse 17, for instance, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Even here in verse 20, he notes that God is making his appeal through Paul. God is the one speaking, and Paul is just relaying the message. Second, ambassadors are distinct. Again, they're foreigners. They don't necessarily live according to the traditions or even the laws of the lands they're living in. Instead, they live according to the customs of their own kingdom. Again, they're representatives. Part of what that requires is looking to part. They live as people of their homeland. That doesn't mean they don't respect the traditions of the land in which they're staying, of course, but they still retain their own customs. When we saw last week, Paul was most especially this, right? He was distinct. At times, he was so committed to living according to the priorities and customs of his kingdom that at times people thought he was out of his mind. They didn't have any explanation for what would motivate a man to live by such extreme measures. Paul tells the Corinthians in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, I do it because I have a different home and I serve a different king. So ambassadors are faithful, they're distinct. But perhaps most importantly, they're sent, Right? meaning they don't just sit at home and write letters. No, they actually pack their bags and like travel to the foreign land that they've been assigned to in order to interact with the citizens and leadership of that kingdom. Now, I want to make this point clear. This is pretty crucial here. I want you to understand this. This is already true of all of us. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are already in the foreign service. You are currently deployed on behalf of the kingdom of God simply by being here on this earth. Again, this is not your home. We are sojourners. So don't misunderstand my point here. You can fulfill your mission just exactly where you are. Remain as you are, Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 7. There's no reason to feel like you must change in order to fulfill this aspect of your mission. And yet I think we must still understand this aspect about ourselves. Sojourning is going to be expressed in going, right? It's going to be expressed in not being at home and in even abandoning one's homeland. I think if we're understanding our identity as ambassadors, then we'll embrace this point, really not just spiritually, but physically as well. Meaning just as the gospel forces us to think of ourselves not as Americans first, but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, so also should it force us to engage in this mission beyond the borders of our own country. Now again, this may not mean that all of us will become foreign missionaries, but we should each still embrace the idea that we are responsible to send this message beyond the borders of our neighborhoods and communities and, and take it into other communities to a people that we may have never even met before. Because that's what it means to be an ambassador. So what are you, Christian? What labels should define you? There are many. But over the course of this month, I hope you've seen that this is one main one. And that's sojourner. The gospel means that this world is not your home. You have a more glorious and abiding inheritance awaiting you in heaven. And if you're wise, then you'll live in light of that reality 
by seeking to maximize the reward you have awaiting you by spending this life in service to Christ. How do you do that? What does that look like? Well, it means using this life to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim it broadly. I close with a reading from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then he continues, verse 10, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now may the Lord incline your heart to sow bountifully so that you may reap a great reward. Let's pray.